All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to first or second Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we're continuing our look into David's life as we have over the last several months now. And I would say for the most part, um, we've hit a lot of high notes in David's life. We've talked about some areas that have been cautionary struggles and, and, and maybe th- some things that, you know, we're like, oh, David, why'd you do that? Um, this morning, though, it's full blown. Oh, my gosh, David, what are you doing? Um, the scriptures don't hold back. And so we're going to look into this and, and hopefully um, learn some things for us as we walk with Jesus. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time as we open his word. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for your grace and for being so kind and, and good to us. Uh, thank you for loving us so well and for giving us a great Savior in your Son, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us, fitting us into your family, and for giving us purpose as we live, uh, live this life on this earth. And part of that purpose, as we were just reminded by Barry, is to go and make more disciples of you. We are thankful, Father, that you call us to multiply our faith and that there are people, men and women, children of the kingdom, that are um, specifically dedicating their lives to that work. And so we pray for Barry and Marquita, and we pray for their ministry. We pray, Father, for their travels here as they visit with family and, and friends and supporting churches. We just pray for a refreshing time for them and also uh, a time for them to kind of uh, recalibrate their hearts and, and get ready to return to Guatemala. And, and I know their hearts are, are still there with the work. And so we just pray you would bless their ministry. We pray, Father, in these moments in your word today that we would hear from you, that your spirit would teach us and that we would be open and receptive, even in times of um, poor choices and and, and really tragedy, as we see in this text, that we would be um, receptive enough to know why you've included these things in your word so that we may grow and learn. And more importantly, be more like your son, Jesus. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And thank you that you are a God that we can always approach and be forgiven as we confess our hearts to you. And so, Father, be glorified in all these things. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. If a book could be written about your life, what would you want included in it? I mean, likely information where you were born, your ancestral history, your family, maybe some significant achievements, where you worked, how you did your time, moments on uh, family, your faith, and I would hope your positive impact in the world that you live in. I was thinking about this very briefly, and I, you know, if I had a title for my book, it would be something like The Greatest Husband, Dad, Pastor, Golfer Out There. Um, that, that would be my title, uh, but actually it would probably read something to do with God's amazing patience and grace. Um, you know, so, you know, just think through that. If, 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 if there were things to be said about you, what would you want included? And what about those other areas? You know, we, we want all the successes, all the mountaintops, all the high points, all, all of the peaks of life. But what about the failure, the struggle, the sin, the shame? 
the dark moments when you struggled to believe God. When you doubted His goodness. When you fell short of His glory. I think if we're honest, we all have a side to our story that we don't want anyone to read. We don't even like to look into it. And even if nothing is ever known by those on the outside, we still know that those events occurred. The pages of Scripture invite us into a period of David's life that does not hold anything back. Chapters 11 and 12 reveal the depth of David's sinful heart and the chaos that it created in his personal and in his family life. This passage is often referred to as one of the three great sins of Scripture. Adam and Eve, Judas, and David and Bathsheba. Right? Like when you ask people, okay, what are some of the three major or top five major struggles that people face in Scripture? This is kind of where they go. It's startling to read. Especially within the backdrop of David being a man after God's own heart. You know, as I read through this text again, I was thinking, wow, God made so many amazing, faithful promises to this guy. And he did this. But it also serves as an example to us who only by the grace of God have not committed such glaring acts of sinful disobedience. It's also an example of the grace of God, of a man who made terrible choices. And he suffered the consequences of those terrible choices. But he also found a God who restores those who seek him. This season of David's life is going to take a few weeks to unpack. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about uh, the, the specific act that he committed or acts that he committed of sinful disobedience. Next week we're going to talk about the confrontation as God brought someone into David's life to look him right in the eyes and say, you are wrong. And, and then the week after that we're going to look at one of the Psalms that David wrote. As he wrote in during the season of time of brokenness, as he cried out to God. Now, as we examine David's life at this time, there, there are two things that I want you to see this morning, two big things. And the first thing is that you're going to hear God's word as a warning of the danger of taking your eyes off the Lord. And so, you know, if you're in a season of life and, and you think, hey, everything's fine, everything's good, I love God, and, and, and you take your eyes off of Him, trouble potentially can break out. And so there's going to be a cautionary warning to us to always keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Uh, the second thing is, no matter what sin has been committed, there is always a way back to the Lord. The way back is through confession and repentance. There is always a way back to the Lord. There is always a way back to the Lord. And some of you this morning might be trying to find your way back to the Lord. 
Some of you know that you found your way back to the Lord. And some of you are trying to convince yourself that you can come back to the Lord. There is always a way back. There is always a father who wants us to come home. There is always a father that is seeking us, loving us. And in spite of our disobedience, wants us to come home and find rest in the grace that he provides. When you read a passage like this, it's easy to kind of say, oh, I would never do that. And, you know, we have this arms folded kind of critical judgment. But in humility, we need to cling to the grace of God when we read a passage, when we read a story, when we read an episode of of this, of a man who was after God's own heart and tragically fell. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 warns us of where we need to be with this. And this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You know, it's easy for us to look at situations and the chaos that erupts in people's lives. And, and, and I do this sometimes. I'm guilty of this where, you know, in, in my little pastor world, I'm in tune with what's going on in the church. And sadly, tragically, over the last few years, there's been some high profile church leaders that have had tragic falls and, and just ministries that have crashed and burned. And I, and I can often think, how did they get there? How did this happen? Or, oh, I would never do that. And, you know, all those things that we we kind of take a step back and say, oh, no, I would never. And then I'm reminded of what Paul says here, because it's only by the grace of God that none of us fall. And so we need to take heed. That's really the main emphasis of what Paul's saying in verse 12. We need to take heed. We need to hold fast. We need to be aware. We need to be conscious of the almost instant ability that can happen in a person's life when they drop their eyes off of Jesus, that they can make tragic mistakes that lead to terrible, sinful choices as they feed their flesh and disobey God. So take heed as you read this story. So let's look at this passage. Taking heed and learning, even in a bad example, so that we can be encouraged to walk faithfully with Jesus. Let me read verses 1 through 4 for you. This sets the scene of everything that's going to take place. We read in verse 1, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Yikes. Take heed. 
that we do not fall. Now, a couple of things that we want to note in this passage as we kind of unpack it. We're going to spend a lot of our time in these first four verses, and then we're going to walk through some of the, the consequences and choices that David made from this event. But really what we know about at this time as we put things together is David is roughly 50 years old at this time. Uh, he's been king of Israel for roughly 20 years. The opening verses set the scene for David's rebellion. And I want to be clear as we look at this passage that any act of sin is open rebellion against the Lord. We don't accidentally sin. We don't, oops, I didn't realize it. It's an open, willful rebellion against the holiness of God. And not just this kind of sin that we would classify as, oh yeah, that's, a, that's obvious it's a sin. Any sin that we commit is an open rebellion against a holy God. The text indicates the season and time that this event took place. We read in the spring. Now, the springtime in Israel is their dry season. It's dry and warm. It's the time when kings would go out to battle in the Middle East and battle against each other. We read in chapter 10 that David and Joab were out to battle against Ammon, which is like the capital of modern day Syria to the north. And they were out to battle and they were fighting these battles. And, you know, due to the weather and the changes, they would stop the battle. And then when the weather got better, they would resume the battles. And so we read that it's springtime. And David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. But David stayed in Jerusalem. This is an interesting authorial note by the writer of 2 Samuel, that he said that David stayed behind. Listen, kings normally didn't stay behind when their troops went off to battle. The kings often went with their warriors as they were fighting. The implication by the author in commenting on these events is that David was not acting responsibly. He was not with his troops out to battle. David is home. And where is he this night in the spring as these events take place? He's on his roof. Now, his home in Jerusalem would have been larger than any of the other homes. His palace that was built for him by all the donations from the leaders around. And they, they made this home for him that we read about earlier in Second Samuel. And he was out on his roof and his, his bedroom would have been on the top for, and there would have been an open balcony. You know, they didn't have doors and windows like we know today. And, and so there would have been this access that he'd have to almost like a patio on the top of his roof. And he was out on this evening on the top floor, enjoying the outside air as the, the summer, I mean, the springtime warm winds are blowing in Jerusalem at this time. So David is relaxing on a warm spring night, looking out over Jerusalem and nearby his house is higher. Okay, so he's he's on a high vantage point and he's looking around. In the evening and nearby, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was, as the text indicates, very beautiful in appearance. 
Now, notice something in what the author says. The woman sa- or it is said of the woman that she is very beautiful. And when Scripture uses this word very, what, it, what it's doing is intensifying the adjective. So she's beautiful, but Scripture is saying she's very beautiful. He's set, the author is setting in our minds like, okay, we, we understand what's going on here. And so what does David do? David doesn't turn around and go in, back into his bedroom. Shut the curtains and say, okay, I saw a beautiful woman. I'm moving on. What he does is he sends for an inquiry. Who is this woman? Here's the thing, though. Why is he even asking that question? Why does he even want to know who this woman is? David's already married. And he doesn't just have one wife. He has multiple wives. And we read later, he has many concubines. Why does he even need to know this woman's name? We know David is a man of compassion, as we looked at last week, right, with Mephibosheth. David is a man of great compassion. He's also a man of great passion. Our fallen culture celebrates the passions of the flesh. David was in big trouble. He's in great trouble. You begin to indicate, and we talked about this when David was uh, ascending to the throne and coming into the land as king. Remember, he kept multiplying wives and concubines and children. And I had noted that, hey, later we're going to talk about this. And it's going to be a moment in David's life where it's going to be not just a trap or a trip up. It's going to cause him to fall flat on his face and it's going to destroy his family. That this is kind of what's happening here. David could not satisfy his passions. He could not satisfy his fleshly urges with more activity. More wives and more concubines wasn't helping him. Listen, it doesn't work that way when it comes to the temptations we feel in our flesh. I've heard people say, well, I had to do this because if I didn't, it would just drive me to want something more. I've heard people say that to me, that you have to feed to kill the desire. That doesn't work. The only way to overcome the flesh is to kill off what feeds it. To kill it off. Now, listen, in the backdrop of 2 Samuel, it's a spotlight on David's lustful heart. His fleshly passions. And it's easy for us to look at that under that lens and say, okay, we specifically know that this passage talks just about these things. But when you step back, what you need to know as a person who struggles, right? If, if you are a human, your experience is sin. And I think we're all humans in here, right? 
Okay, so our experience is sin. And there are temptations that we have. And, and sometimes our temptations are different than the guy sitting or the person sitting next to us. And if you're going to find victory over sin and you're going to find it in Jesus Christ, you need to know that in this relationship with Jesus, as you yield your life to him, one of the biggest ways that you can find victory over sin is that in Christ, you kill off your desires, your appetites, and you not just kill off things, but you move towards the grace of God. And you move towards the power that God gives you to overcome. As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, there is no temptation that is common to man, but that God is able to give us an escape every time we are tempted. God provides an escape, a way out, an opportunity to shift our worldly, fleshly desires and turn them towards him. And so it's not just about our sexual appetite in, sec, in 2 Samuel 11. That's what the spotlight's on. But there's also something for us to learn if we don't struggle with that, that we cut off, we kill off what feeds our worldly flesh. So, so David sends an inquiry. Notice how the, the servant replies in the text. The servant replies, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, what the servant is doing in replying to the question that David has is something important. See, back when someone asked, who is this person? They would say, so-and-so, son or daughter of, end of story. But the servant doesn't do that. The servant says, yes, this is the daughter of Liam. But this is also, as we read, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The servant, without overstepping his bounds and, and challenging the king, is saying, hey, David, in case you forgot, because David should have known, this woman that you're asking about is married. And her husband is Uriah. Bathsheba's husband is named. Her dad is Eliam, who is the son of one of David's counselors, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, later on, will abandon David and support his son Absalom. And it's quite possible it's because of this event that, this, that Ahithophel says, I don't have David's side. This is what he did to my family. And then there's Uriah, who was a foreigner. He's Uriah the Hittite. And whether he was born in Israel but came from a Hittite ancestry or he was grafted in as you know, a part of what was going on in Israel. His name, Uriah, means Jehovah is light. We know that he was a mighty man of valor. In fact, he is one of the mighty men of valor is, that is uh, labeled later as being a part of one of David's mighty men. So David knew him. Where is Uriah? 
Well, he's off in battle with Joab. And where is David? He's at home. Verse 4 is so quick in its description. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. It's so quick. Bathsheba was sent for. David lay with her. They had sex. He satisfied his passions. One time. One time. David's flesh was hungry. And he satisfied his hunger. David is the aggressor here. But Bathsheba also consented. There's nothing in the text that says that she did not consent or was not a party of what was going on here. But David initiated all of this. David saw, he desired, and he took. Listen, David cannot help seeing. We live in a world, right? We have eyeballs. We can't help but see. We can't. But he could have stopped watching. And as he watched, he lusted. Listen, it's not the first look that will get you in trouble. It's the second gaze. He should have been like Job, and he would have known this because Job was a book that was written earlier than when David lived. When Job said that he made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look at any woman lustfully. He should have been like Job. But he wasn't. Now, just a note on Bathsheba from the text. Uh, She was bathing that night in her home due to just finishing her menstruation cycle. (laughs) I know we're like talking about all the things today. But the, the book of Leviticus required this ceremonially. A woman was unclean with her cycle and she had to purify or prepare herself afterwards. What we don't know and what we sometimes assume is that she's like openly advertising herself to the Jerusalem nighttime community as she's bathing in the evening. Very likely not. She's likely has like a a little bowl that she's bathing. That was what was customary at that time. And she wouldn't have been in the outright open But David had the vantage point and he could see down into the city at night. And this is just one night of passion, David thought. No one's going to know. Uriah's off to war. No one will find out. And then we read verse 5. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. You know what's interesting about this verse? This is the only speech Bathsheba makes in all of Scripture. I am pregnant. I think there's a layer of her telling David because when her husband is home from war and finds out she's pregnant, what was the Old Testament penalty for adultery? Stoning her life. And she's like, okay, David, we've got to figure this out. Because if I'm going down, you're going down with me. 
I mean, there are consequences for this act. So here's what I want you to understand, and, and I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to follow it up with a quotation from Chuck Swindoll. I want you to understand and listen in to, to this because it's really important for us. Indulging the flesh always carries consequences. Indulging the flesh always carries consequences. Swindoll rightly observes, he says, It's been my observation over the years that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He shows you only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of stolen desires. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there will be a hangover. Ultimately, you'll ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, you're going to get caught, friend. You do this and you'll wind up behind bars. He certainly doesn't warn the adulterer, you know, pregnancy is a real possibility or you could get a life threatening disease. He goes on and he says, are you kidding? Face it. When the sin is done and all the penalties of that sin come due, the devil is nowhere to be found. He smiles as you fall. Do we think about that? Are we able to remind ourselves? Remember, the devil is a liar. He never wants our good. And when he tempts, and we're prone to say in our flesh, you know what? It's not a big deal. No one's going to find out. If there are no consequences that you can see with your eyes, God knows. And that should always be enough for us to say, no, not ever. And so what happens? Well, in verses 6 through 25, David is panicking and he puts a plan in a place. And let me read these verses for you. And we're going to kind of work through them pretty quickly. David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. And so this is the plan that David hatches. He says, okay, well, I'm going to ask for Uriah to come back. I'm going to send word. And if anyone asks why Uriah is being sent home, I mean, there's a battle going on. Why Uriah? When he comes, the guise of why he's there is, I want to check and see how Joab is doing as general of the, the, the army. And Uriah will be able to give a report. So verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and a, pre and present the king, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your 
soul. I will not do this thing. And so that's the first step. I mean, David thought, I'll, I'll send for Uriah. Uriah will come home as a man from leave, from war. What is he going to want to do? He's going to want to go home. Oh, he's going to see his very beautiful wife and they're going to lay together. And oh, by the way, she's pregnant. Oh, okay. And then Uriah is going to be like, I must be the father. The problem is Uriah is a man of integrity. And so he comes and, and, and David gives this counsel, go down to your house and wash your feet. And I could spend about five minutes talking about what the phrase wash your feet means in the Hebrew. But basically it means prepare yourself to have relations with a woman. And, and so, you know, he's thinking, hey, he's going to come home and they're going to lay together. Problem solved. Bathsheba will be covered. Everything will be okay. The problem is Uriah doesn't even go home. He stays at the king's gate all night long. And when it's confronted, when he's confronted by David, like, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you enjoy lay down your, with your wife? All those things on your leave. He says the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. Right? Like he's saying, listen, who am I? In this time of war, while my brothers are at the front lines fighting, while the ark of God is in temporary shelter, and and that might mean the tabernacle in Jerusalem, it also might mean that they brought the ark with them into battle as the sign of God's presence is in a temporary place. Why would I do anything while all those things and all those people are in that kind of situation? And so David needs plan B. Maybe, yeah, plan B right now. Okay, so he says that. And then David says in verse 12, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him. And David made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So plan B is, okay, Uriah, come back tonight. We're going to have a party. I'm going to host you. And David's ulterior motive is I'm going to get him drunk. He's going to be drunk. He's going to wander home. And he's going to lay with his wife. Warren Worsby wrote about plan B. Uriah drunk proved to be a better man than David sober. (laughs) Plan B doesn't work. So now there's plan C. And just note at this point, if you have unconfessed sin in your life and you're in open rebellion to God and you're trying to handle things on your own, there are not, not, not enough letters in the alphabet to satisfy all the plans that you try to make to make it better. He should have immediately went to God and confessed his sin. But what does he do? Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. 
So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. So David writes a letter, right? Uriah is going back to the front lines. David writes a letter to the general of the army and says, okay, this is the plan. This is what I want you to do with Uriah. Now, we can't go into this a whole lot, but Joab's no dummy. He knows David. He knows the situation. He knows what's going on. He's starting to put things together. Why did you send Uriah home? Ah, okay, this is why you sent him home. And so David writes a letter, which is the death sentence for Uriah. Who does he give the letter to, to give to Joab? Uriah. And he's such a man of integrity, he didn't open the letter on the way back, right? The king wrote this letter, you honor the king. And every step that Uriah made back to the front lines, he was carrying his own execution orders. This is the depravity and fallenness of David magnified. And from first glance, it might seem, well, David didn't kill Uriah. Yes, he did. He gave the order. So not only is David an adulterer, now he's a murderer. The plan goes exactly as hatched. But not only did Uriah die, verse 17 indicates that when he died, so did some of David's servants. So now there are other men that have died as a result of David's actions. And you might think, well, they're at war. People die. That's just a part of war. Not in this specific instance. Because David was culpable in arranging the events that took place. And so, word gets back. The thought is David might be despondent hearing the news that men died, Uriah died. But David replies basically in verse 25, and he says, Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. David's replies, Oh well, that's war. That's what happens. And then we read in verse 26. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Now, this is important in verse 26, as the author indicates. He doesn't call her Bathsheba. 
He calls her the wife of Uriah. This is important because even though we know her name, she is his wife. In fact, this carries on all throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament. When you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew, it's like some 1,000 years later, in talking about the lineage of coming through David and Solomon, what does it say that Solomon was born to Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It doesn't say David's wife. It says Uriah's wife. And when the time of mourning was over, David marries her. Verse 27. David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So David marries her. He didn't need to. He could have, like Mephibosheth, just provided for her. I mean, he could have done that, but now he brought another wife into the mix and that added another family dynamic. But more importantly, we read the final 11 words of verse 27. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the only time we see the Lord in this whole passage. David is making decisions and choices and and reacting to situations and the events that he made. And God is nowhere to be found. But God knew what was going on. And we read that David did evil in the sight of God. David's actions and thoughts were far from God. And as we will see in the coming weeks, trouble was coming for David as a result of the evil that he committed Even a man after God's own heart would suffer the consequences for his sin. I cannot stress enough that we observe the tragic progression of David in this chapter. It began when he was bored. He was bored. He should have been out to battle. He wasn't. He was home walking around his roof at night. He should have been in battle, but he was home idle. He looked once and then he gazed. He lusted. He excused his actions. He took what wasn't his and he satisfied his flesh. And so let me conclude with some suggestions concerning specifically what we're reading about the text. The first thing is this. You need to realize there is nothing that will guarantee your immunity of feeling the temptation of sexual sin. Sex is a gift of God. It is. He created it for the enjoyment of husband and wife in the marriage relationship. It is to be enjoyed only in that context. But we are wired and and put together in a way to want to enjoy it. Sin magnifies it and turns it into an object rather than a relationship to be expressed. And it makes it more about the person than the other person that you're supposed to be connecting with. So we need to understand as people that are fallen, that this reality exists. We'll never be immune of the feeling of the temptation of sexual sin. In that realization, we need to know that our ability to overcome is tied into our daily commitment to the Lord. You can strengthen your heart against temptation 
by walking with him in fellowship and prayer. Listen, you can't just cut things out of your life. You have to fill your life with things. And I I stress that you fill your life with the goodness of Jesus Christ. And let him be your satisfaction. If you're married, cultivate intimacy with your spouse. They are God's gift to you in marriage. Celebrate that. And, and can I just stress, because some of you guys out there is like, hey, pastor said it. Can I stress to you, though, physical intimacy is just a part of the total package of intimacy that God wants, to, wants us to have with our spouse. There's relational intimacy, social intimacy, spiritual intimacy. We need to be cultivating those things. In our relationship with our spouse. It's not just physical. And I think that's where a lot of people in marriage get themselves in trouble. Because they think that's what it's all about when that's just a part of it. And so, if you're married, cultivate intimacy with your spouse. Your intimacy with your spouse begins long before you ever reach the bedroom. With that, be accountable to each other. Voluntarily share where you've been and who you've been with. Let there be open accountability. You offer it. We think of accountability like someone else is going to ask us. Now, in mutual accountability, on behalf of the other person that's holding us accountable, we're not afraid to share where we've been and who we've been with. Can I also add, and I was thinking about this this morning, if you're single... Because I know this is talking about if you're married. If you're single, though, you need to understand and you need to commit yourself to the reality of God's design and gift for intimacy. And it is only through marriage. Because in a culture and a world that says, hey, no big deal. Do whatever you want. There's no consequences. Oh, there's consequences. Be committed to understand God's design and order for life and family. Finally, anticipate temptation and avoid it. Listen, treat each person as they are God's son and daughter. Treat each person. If you know they're in the faith or not, they are God's son and daughter. They are created in the image of God. Hands off. Eyes off. So as we close this tragic chapter, I want you to remember that it is far better to immediately acknowledge our sin rather than to try to cover it up. God is not pleased and will not idly sit back and watch us choose self over him. But always know that when we seek forgiveness and repent, we will always meet a heavenly father who will restore us and welcome us home. That's who he is. And that's his heart for his children. So let's pray.